This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 79. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hey, so, Deirdre from Cape Town asked me a few personal questions about my journey with depression. And instead of answering her in the email, I thought I'll answer to all of you. And that's simply because I know that those of you who suffer from depression, it's helpful to not only know in your head that you're not the only one, but to actually emotionally connect to someone else's experience. And for those of you who don't, I'm kind of hoping that you get maybe a little bit more insight into what it feels like. But before we go to my journey, let's start with the definition of depression. And I'm looking at the DSM, the diagnostics and statistical manual that psychiatrists and other professionals use to diagnose what they call major depressive disorder. So it's described as depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure in daily activities for more than two weeks. Mood represents a change from the person's baseline. So if you are already someone who's not exactly ecstatic with life, It's really important. It means that it takes a bit more for you to be diagnosed with depression. Whereas if you're someone who's generally very happy and positive all the time, then it might take a little bit less, right? So that's what is meant by baseline. So they talk about impaired functions. So you have social, occupational or educational disturbances. And they talk about specific symptoms, nine in total. And you should have at least five of those which have to be present nearly every day. So it will be diagnosed as a major depressive disorder. So the first is depressed mood or irritable mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either subjective report, so you feel sad or empty, or observation made by others. Appears, for example, tearful, right? So number two, decreased interest or pleasure in most activities most of the day. Three, Significant weight change, so plus minus 5% of your baseline weight. Four, change in sleep, insomnia or hyperinsomnia. Now, I'm not sure how you can, you know, not sleep even more than you don't sleep, so I'm not sure what hyperinsomnia is, but it sounds bad. Um, five, change in activity, psychomotor agitation or retardation, meaning that you have problems with movements. Six, fatigue or loss of energy. Seven, a sense of guilt and worthlessness, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. Eight, concentration is diminished and it's talking about the ability to think or concentrate or, you know, extreme indecisiveness. And nine, suicidality. So thoughts of death or suicide or has a suicide plan. Now, I have two issues with this official definition. Two weeks doesn't seem that long, especially if this happens, say, every seven years. So so if you're, you know, for two weeks, you're a bit down and, and you have less energy. I mean, all these things usually go together, right? So if you happen to have a bad flu, for example, you will show five of these symptoms. If you break your leg or if someone close to you dies, 
this is also very likely to happen. And my point is that it's really hard to draw a line between feeling bad, which is a natural and even functional part of being human, and an actual condition, which is not. So feeling low in energy and being too tired to move would have been an, ex an excellent strategy to keep out of harm's way when your body simply needed healing. Imagine you felt perky and full of energy when you were sick, and all those good guys in your immune system, they can't really go to work unless you're resting, so it's kind of good to feel these things. Do you, do you get what I mean? So it's, of course, absolutely beneficial to pretend that something which is human is a condition and should be treated with pills, and that is, of course, if you are a pharma company or a doctor. Not so much if you're the person being led to believe that what is happening is some weird chemical thing that can only be fixed with using drugs. Drugs take symptoms away. They don't, they don't, you know, heal or cure the thing that happened. And having said that, drugs are in some cases absolutely necessary. So they're important to give you some relief so you have the energy to address what needs to be changed. They're absolutely vital if you're suicidal or in danger of harming yourself or others. However, if you just take drugs and change nothing else, it is very likely that depression will just keep coming back. And I personally never took antidepressants because I didn't trust that this would solve my problem in the long term. What I did was I sometimes did take a tea made of St. John's wort, which is a substance that's you know, made out of some plant, and the extract of that herb is used sometimes in drugs, although I'm, of course, pretty hazy on the details because I'm not into chemistry at all. We will, by the way, probably get deeper into this. Um, I can't tell you yet why, but I'm having an interview lined up. Not sure yet when it will happen, but for those of you who are interested in this, we will probably get into it a bit deeper. So Deidre asked, asked me, what triggered your depression? And it's hard to say what triggered it or even when it started, as it wasn't just one event. I think it was a combination of being very sensitive to begin with, you know, questioning things from an early age, which uh, my teachers couldn't really deal with. And therefore, you know, they just chatted at me and I, I was made to feel really stupid and incapable at school. And I... Uh, Witness, witness my <clears throat> parents' marital struggles uh, without being able to change anything about that and the constant insecurity of whether we would be kicked out of the apartment because my dad couldn't make the rent sometimes and, you know, other times he had a lot of money, but some months not at all. Now, I don't want you to think that my childhood was one long and horrible stretch of this kind of stuff. It, it was filled with lots of, you know, kid games, dreams of becoming a Native American <laughs> And native Indian, sorry, not a Native American, no offense, but I never wanted to become a Native American, who would roam the plains with a bow and arrow and howl with the wolves. That's kind of what I wanted to do when I was an eight-year-old. And, you know, good-natured pranks. We played on adults and, and we played a lot of soccer. I, I could have turned pro at some point, you know, if I wanted to. And um, when I was a bit older, something that hugely contributed to my depression was reading the paper, um, the news um, every day and in great detail from almost from cover to cover. Also, when I was older, facing very difficult situations at work, you know, in the office um, between 
18 and 21, uh, where other people couldn't really deal with their frustration and their darkness. They had to take it out on me and some others until I was convinced that I was absolutely hope and worthless, you know, and could never possibly do anything right at all. My struggles were hard for me, and I knew that my peers could stay kids for a bit longer, but I know exactly that things could have been way worse. Um, I, you know, I could have grown up in a family with addiction problems, physical abuse, or early deaths, and none of that happened to me. Also, no matter what was happening, I always knew that my parents really, really loved me, and that's not something that everyone experiences, you know? So so I didn't have one of those depression light episodes that are described in the DSM where you're, you know, just a bit down for two weeks. Not at all. I mean, mine was way worse, but it didn't get to a point where I had to be hospitalized or actively, you know, try to kill myself, although I did harbor such thoughts quite frequently. Deirdre also asked, so what were the challenges faced? Well, I'll do my best to des- to describe the challenges, but it's genuinely hard to convey how all-encompassing depression feels, even if from the outside, things might not look that bad at all. You know, I think some people who knew me at that age, they this would be news to them. So when you're a sensitive person, you register things others might not think about. You you notice the pain in people's voices who confirm with a smile that they're well. And I know this because those people would later confide in me that they weren't well at all. You feel other people's emotion like sadness or anger, sometimes the instant when they come in. And this is a weird feeling, like you can be feeling quite all right, and then something just, you know, is like is swept over you like some blanket or some wave of anger or sadness and and you know it's not from you and you just look around and you see some person or or you you see injustice or violence and and it it was not over for me when i turned off the tv it it would come back again and again coupled with deep sadness that this is happening in the first place and a lot of dread that you can't really do anything to change these things So what happens with depression is you enter a number of really vicious cycles, and not just one of them. You think about serious and troubling things all day, which makes your brain think, well, that's where all your attention should go, so it serves you more bad things while relegating happy and nice memories and occurrences to some obscure and unexamined corner of your memory. You have no energy, so you don't go outside, exercise, or do activities which would energize you, and therefore you lack fresh air, the benefits of being outside, such as, you know, vitamin D, you have less happy experiences, and your body stops functioning optimally if you don't move, which, of course, amplifies your misery. Um, Things that once brought you joy, hope, creativity, they feel completely empty, and your your go-to mechanisms, they just fail. It feels like nothing will ever help you feel you know, get better. You feel helpless about change and you stop attempting it at some point. Then people start noticing they want to help, but they don't know how to help and often end up saying the very things that make depression worse, such as cheer up, there's so much to be grateful for, or oh, I was b- depressed too when my football team lost, or, or you know, even better, depression is selfish. And 
these things make you feel further away from others and they reinforce your helplessness because obviously you try to cheer up you you probably might have even dragged yourself to exercise or just to smile when you didn't feel like it and it didn't work and as others start to notice that their efforts don't work they might become discouraged and turn away so you really end up being more isolated than ever before and in case you're a loving relative or friend and think well okay all these things don't help but what does i'll you know go into it a bit later when you're not healthy, you become more susceptible to other treat- people treating you badly. Some people sense a position of weakness and, you know, they shamelessly exploit that. Or you also start imagining that people have worse motives than they might have. So you become less agreeable with, which of course drives a lot of good and innocent people away. So yeah, those are the challenges. And She asked, what did it do to my thoughts and behavior? So, you know, experiences and thoughts included feeling really numb, uh, no, no joy, no interest, no hope, no passion. And it feels like you are shielded from most pleasurable and healthy things. And in a weird way, even zombies are better off because although they are not, they are undead, at least they have some goal they care about. You know, they want to make you a zombie. And when you're depressed, you really... You're kind of beyond caring and not because you don't care. It's because you, you it's too painful to care. And my behavior towards others, well, there was this um, overwhelming sense of disconnection, this vicious cycle that I talked about. You, you think people don't love and understand you. You act hurt, needy, passive or cold and others try to help but can't and start feeling bad about themselves and distance themselves and this reinforces isolation. Simply put, um, I wanted to die. And I, I, I didn't, you know, the only thing that kind of helped me to not do anything about that was the fact that I didn't want to hurt my parents. And so I stared longingly at anything heavy and just hoped it would drop on my head. Like, for real, like, it sounds weird. It sounds like an almost funny, like, teenage thing to do. But it's not funny. When, when you're in a situation where you think it's preferable for something really heavy to drop on your head, it's not fun to be in that place. And 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 yeah, I, I thought that every single day when I when I walked through the men's station on my way to work for uh, I think about six months um, or even longer. From a psychological point of view, um, well, you you just start explaining events to you in the worst and most pessimistic kind of way. So. Anything that's good is an exception, and everything that's bad is just, you know, confirms that the world sucks, and that you suck, and and that there's nothing that can be done about it. There's a lot of rumination. Um, You just, you know, bad things are just stuck on replay the whole freaking day. You, yeah, you explain things in a way that's really unhelpful. You develop this narrative of helplessness, and this concerns both the world you know, all the bad things in the world that you cannot change anything about. But it also concerns you, that you are helpless about your life and that nothing you do can make a difference. And uh, yeah, to top it off, it just feels like this is all encompassing and forever lasting. That's probably the worst feeling because if you knew that you're feeling all this crap, but it will be over in, say, a week, you can deal with it. But depression makes you feel like it will never ever go away. 
I was a functional depressive person, so I think not everybody knew what was going on at all. And also the fact that because you feel emotions so strongly when you have good times, people think you're really a happy person, which is not wrong in the moment, but it blinds them to the possibility that something else could be going on. So for me, it seems like sometimes people have made up their mind, oh, she's she's a happy person or whatever, and and then they would just completely miss when you're doing badly because that just didn't, you know, jibe with what they thought you are like, you know. So how did you work yourself out of it is the next question that she asked. And step one is, uh, as weird as it sounds, step one is probably to have some breakdown of some sort where you realize that you can't continue life as you know it. It sounds stupid. And I'm not sure that without that moment I would have had the energy and commitment to stick with the work that needed to be done and this doesn't mean it's not possible without a breakdown I don't know that um but I think it probably helps to have some breakdown of some sorts step two is to get a lot of helpful information I read lots of books and I took notes and I journaled about it and I think that's very important you can't be passive about it you know it's it's one thing to just you know, have things transported to your ear or your eye. Uh, it's a very different thing to actually engage with it mentally. So taking notes and, and journaling about it is an important part of the process. Tra- step three was, um, you know, I, I tried out everything that made sense to me. So when they said, like, treat yourself like a friend, talk to yourself as you would to a friend inside of your head, that's what I did when they talked about how you can distance yourself from your thoughts. I actively did that again and again. And some things might not work. You know, some some things might not work for you or they might not work instantly. And you kind of just have to accept that that's just what it is. It's an experiment. It's, it doesn't mean that nothing can be done ever. Step four is to keep going. So I know this was a bit not very detailed, so let's get into some more details first of all i read a lot of buddhism back then and this is really not about religion you know it's really not about praying to the buddha or even connecting to his story and that's something that i think people should open their minds to you can engage let's say with the ideas of christianity without believing that jesus turned water into wine for example, right? You, you don't have to believe that stuff. You can say like, all right, that, I don't believe that, but let's see if there are other helpful ideas in the Bible or in the Quran or wherever it is that you're looking. And if you, if you can't do that, if you just think like, oh, you're, you're just reading it to confirm that it's stupid or something, it's not going to help. So you need to approach whatever it is that you're looking at with a certain amount of openness. So what with Buddhism really helped me was they introduced this idea that there is a distance between me and my thoughts. And that never occurred to me because my head is just firing off these thoughts. And I thought that's, you know, that's me. That that stream of consciousness kind of thing. I didn't understand that you could step out of it sometimes and watch those thoughts flow by from the outside. And as I started doing that, I was like, hey, wow, this is... uh, this feels good. There's a certain amount of relief in this. They also introduce this idea that not every thought is true. You know, not everything we think is true. And, you know, people feel offended by that, but actually it's very liberating. 
And the other idea that they had is that, well, sit with what is uncomfortable instead of running away from feelings and thoughts that you hate. Sit there. Spend time with them. And that grows courage. It grows resilience. It, it really it makes you a fighter, but in a good way. You know, not in a violent way, but just in a survival survival but in a good way really um then i as i said before i adopted a really this mindset mindset around experimentation and it was probably really helpful that i started studying psychology around that time and i kept reading about experiments so i started treating my life as a series of more experiments to kind of recreate and find other ways of thinking and doing and feeling about things that were more helpful than what I was doing. An absolutely important part of this was also writing, as I said before. It writing has something about it that makes it, you know, something that can be passive, mainly reading or consuming information becomes active the moment we start writing about it. Then the idea of self-compassion, which could have been included with Buddhism as well. Um, but yeah, it's also big in psychology. The study, this you know, the studies, the research by Kristen Neff, it's it's huge. That's uh, one of the game changers. Then I had faith in in a few things. I had faith that I could get over this even if I keep at it, and that although I had no idea what life I would lead, that it would be worth it, and that whatever I couldn't pull off today would be possible someday then I really focused on self-efficacy. And self-efficacy means the self-confidence you develop in a certain domain. You know, being able, the experience of being able to do something, to feel competent. I sought that experience a lot. I sought out activities that made me feel confident um, and competent. And I acknowledged those things, you know, those feelings like, oh, I amplified them at the moment. Um, I also noticed that I often f wished I was somewhere else and um, I, yeah I wished I were somewhere else and or doing something else so I meticulously started thinking about what I could do to improve my current state to such a level that I would not wish myself to be elsewhere all the time. Then something that influenced me a big deal I, I remember I was um, I spent the night at one of my best friend's places and uh, she and her family and me were getting ready for breakfast and the radio was on and then a clown came on and he says, you know, it seems like people who are even-tempered all the time are also very even-keeled when it comes to joy. They don't feel wild excitement and tears of awe and love and beauty or cry themselves silly while laughing. And those who do these things are usually those who feel negative emotions with equal intensity and you know you can't have one without the other and and thinking that really helped me because I, I started looking at the world and there are a few people who are just I, I don't think they they become depressed I and, and I know them well so so I have no reason to believe they have been depressed in their life and but they also don't feel that wild joy they're just you know they're just cool all the time so I was like you know what no I um this pain, this this is kind of a weird price. Now, I don't want to say you have to pay that price because my point is you can get out of depression. 
But at the end of the day, understanding and accepting that you can maybe get out of depression, but that, you know, intense feelings just go both ways. Um, and really thinking about, well, would you really want to say no to these intense times? And, and my answer is no. You know, I, I, I feel too much, yeah, love and excitement and, and all of these things when I'm happy. So I don't want to be this cool person who doesn't feel these things at all. Patience and gentle persistence. That was also a big thing. And of course, the people around me. So when I'm hurting or challenged, I fully need to understand what is happening and come up with possible solutions and try those out before I really talk to anyone. And if I talk before, I feel worse. I feel more helpless and no relief. Lots of other people get relief from talking and confiding to others um, and talking through their problems, but that's not what happens to me. And this is hard for for people who care about me because, you know, you know something is up. Um, you know, because, you know, I, I don't tell you much. I won't. And my family, my loved ones, what they did was that they gave me the space and time and would put up with me even when I didn't really say much. And even when I was sad and not talkative and, and while I... You know, we did sometimes run into problems. I don't want to lie about this. But overall, they respected my wishes to not address things before I was ready. And even if they felt that I was handling it wrong, and that was the space and accepted that I needed to work things out. So that concludes um, your questions, Deirdre. And I added two other sections. One is the aftermath and that's how how is this how do i relate to ex to this experience now that you know it's uh more or less over and i want to emphasize that there's a pride in overcoming something through your own determination and work and by not taking the easy route and i'm not a particular fan of making things harder in general you know harder than they should be but if we get through something difficult, we can and should feel proud and grateful about it. I also appreciate the benefits of my sensitivity, which means I don't somehow curse it, but instead look at those experiences as a price that I had to pay to be able to do the work I do right, right now, you know, with more empathy and compassion. I uh, also learned to put mechanisms in place that protect me, you know, psychologically. I can relate to other people's deep pain, even if I never experienced the same event. And if I and some people I loved hadn't gone through this, I, I have no clue whether I would have ended up studying psychology. Maybe, you know, because even as a kid, I was quite obsessed about understanding why people act and do and think the way they do. But I have no way of knowing if that's what would have happened. I feel competent at bringing light to dark places without drowning in darkness myself and this is true for my inner darkness and that of others um, other people in tears they don't intimidate me because tears are already an improvement to not feeling anything at all and being numb all day long the experience of depression motivated me to create brainwash the audiobook which i recorded recently in Berlin. It's precisely for people depressed or just otherwise not as happy as they could be 
who know that popping pills is not enough and who want to do something about the brain patterns causing the situation. So what if you love someone with depression? Well, this is obviously not a comprehensive account and we could do a whole episode on this, but here are a few ideas. Safety first. If there's a chance that they may harm themselves or others, don't wait to ask for professional help. Um, It's not your job to fix this person. Your job is to accept that they are going through a difficult period and to give them safe space, if you can, where they can bring their fears and thoughts and silence to you without you evaluating them or pressuring them to get better or even wanting them to get better. Because that, that can be stressful because they have their own wants and worries. And don't trouble them with your own desires and wishes. And if you can't do that, it's better to back off, really. You know, getting impatient that they don't pull themselves together or your own sadness about their state or your desire to cheer them up, it's, you know, it's, it's, it comes from a good place, but it doesn't lead to a good place. And even if you cannot understand why they feel the way they do, imagine the worst psychological pain you experienced and imagine for a moment that you were trapped in that state for weeks or months. And that should at least help you appreciate a little bit of what's going on. Also, your view of depression counts. If you think it's this non-issue that everybody has, the person will feel it. If you think it's this terrible condition that nobody knows what to do about, the person will also sense that. And if you can hold on to this idea that depression is serious, but at the same time that it can be treated It communicates hope, even though they are not in touch with that emotion at the moment. Also, try to keep the whole person in mind. We we often tend to let tragic events or diagnosis or depression dominate our view of a person. Oh, he's the one with cancer. She's the one who's depressed. And remind yourself that they are a full person who has many other sides to them that have nothing to do with depression, and that these parts of the person haven't been magically swept away, but are waiting to be awakened again. And maintain a belief that they have untapped resources that will help them get out of it. And you don't necessarily have to say that to them. Seeing those resources will give them, you know, a quiet confidence. Also, protect yourself. Understand what you can and cannot take on. And don't overstep those boundaries. Some people who are in lots of pain lash out. And if that is happening, you have to have a good think about what your boundaries are. So if any of you listening are struggling with depression, I hope you feel a little bit less alone with it. Now we got some reviews. And the first is by Amy from Space, from Germany, not from space. Although, if somebody on the ISS is listening to this, please leave a review. It would be awesome. But coming back to Amy, she said what the world needs right now. Absolutely love this podcast. Great to listen to, energizing and bringing your mood up in seconds. And very informative on positive psychology topics. Everybody should have this podcast on his or her list. And finally, it's the human being that matters. Amy, I am glad that, you know, that shines through. That's really what matters to me. Then another Amy said, I listened to your 
most recent podcast about reflections on passion. You asked people to reach out about reflection and had me thinking for the past couple of days. It is unfortunate that people don't take the time on much or anything anymore. Not just passion, but daily life in general. Thoughtful and reflective responses to questions are doubted because the person replying took a pause. There's also lack of reflection in light social conversation as many people are thinking about the next topic of discussion and not actively listen, listening to what is being said. In this age of instant gratification, the art of reflection is being lost and it is a shame. Thank you, Amy, for sharing your concern concerns with us. Um, you know, I I would like to think that although I have never met most of you folks listening, we are a tribe of sorts. We are united by the belief that learning and applying these concepts can make life better. So the next time you have a conversation, think about our dear Amy and give people your full attention while they're telling you something. Put your phone away where you don't see it and this will not only comfort the Amy's of the world, but probably help you have a more meaningful and enjoyable time with strangers and loved ones alike. Then there's by Flippemstrutul from the US. It says, perfect timing. No, this is not a big production, but it has outstanding content. The host is both personal and insightful, and it is helping me to become a new me. I love helping people becoming different and better versions of themselves. So thank you very much. If this episode resonated with you, there's a big chance that my audiobook Brainwash might be helpful to you. I recorded it recently in Berlin, and it's a 21-day program designed to become aware, uh, challenge, and change the thought patterns which cause depression, anxiety, and stress. And it's a very direct result of the events that I told you about in this chapter. So there's still some time to get it at the early bird pre-order price of 15 bucks. It will go up afterwards. I also recorded a little making of video so you can take a peek at the studio and follow along as I record. And you can find that on strengthsphoenix.com slash M-O-F brainwash all one word mof stands for making of right so making of brainwash mof brainwash all one word and you can find more out about the audiobook if you go to gum as in chewing gum right gum.co slash brainwash have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you soon bye bye thanks for listening to the positive psychology podcast we're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.